Uh, We are in Genesis chapter 37. (coughs) Excuse me. Genesis 37, verses 29 through 35. This past Wednesday, I was able to teach and roots, and I was assigned an overview, 52 chapters of Jeremiah. And today we're doing six verses from Genesis 37. So a little bit of a difference there, but it will be good. This is a rich passage and one that I think will bless us tremendously. Genesis 37, I'm going to read our passage, verses 29 through 35. Now Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit. So he tore his garments. He returned to his brothers and said, The boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, We found this. Please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. Then he examined it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol and mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. The title of our message this morning is Sin's Devastating Aftermath. Sin's Devastating Aftermath. All of us watched stunned as wildfires engulfed the the island of Maui only two months ago. Catalyzed by drought conditions and wind gusts of anywhere near 90 miles per hour, the fire has become one of the deadliest, if not the deadliest, not only in Hawaii's history, but in all the world. The fire's toll was truly devastating, as the following pictures show. We see here a island of the coast there where their courthouse was burned to a crisp. We also see a Another picture here is their iconic lighthouse is now marred by the fire and one of the oldest standing hotels was burned down. We also see another picture here of the devastation caused by these rapidly spreading fires. Overall, reports tell us that in the final toll, the final aftermath of this fire, It included 115 deaths. Over 2,500 acres burned to a crisp, including residential houses, businesses, iconic landmarks, and nearly the entire town of Lahaina. Death, destruction, and devastation. It's the ghastly aftermath of a blazing wildfire. As we turn to the scriptures, wildfires are not the only substance that leave behind a trail of wreckage. Sin on a much larger and on a much grander scale also results in devastation. 
demolishes lives, it disintegrates relationships, and worst of all, it causes division between created man and creator God. The gruesome pitfalls of sin can be seen immediately there in Genesis chapter 3, as we see now the whole world suffering both physically and spiritually under the aftermath of Adam's disobedience. But sin is Sin is sly, is it not? The serpent is the craftiest beast in the field. He tempts us to look at the here and now, not wanting us to think of what will happen later, what will be the fatal repercussions of what sin ends up being. But instead, he presents us a twisted offer. Sin beckons us. It says, come. Enjoy yourself. Par, partake in. It will provide you joy. It will pr- provide you the, the satisfaction that you are so looking for. It will scratch that itch of your soul. There's no harm in this. Right? There's nothing to worry about. Go ahead and indulge in sin. Perhaps we get no better and more descriptive picture of the sinister temptations of sin than Proverbs chapter 5 through chapter 7, where we see Solomon warning his son about the dangers of sin, especially sexual sin. There, if uh, we see that the lips of the adulteress drip honey, her speech is as smooth as oil, sin presents itself as a desirable delicacy, a delicious and dainty morsel for the soul. But if we were to peer behind the smokescreen of sin, what do we actually see? What does Solomon show? Are the true colors of sin? He goes on in that verse. He says, but in the end, she is as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged soul. Her feet go down to death, Her steps take hold of Sheol. Solomon says, son, listen up here. Listen to my warning. Sin is going to come. Sin is going to present itself as this tasty morsel for you to grab uh, onto and, and eat. It's going to seem as if it's a priceless treasure beckoning you to come and take and partake. What does Solomon say? He says, don't do it, my son. Don't do it. Do not give in to sin under no circumstances. Why? Because its way ends in death. All it offers is destruction. In the end, it cannot give what it promises you, but rather is a deadly snare inviting you in so that you would take the bait and then the Uh, the tempter will then lead you into death. That is the aftermath of sin. Therefore, uh, Therefore, we always see Scripture constantly and frequently reminding us of sin's deceitfulness. We get passages like Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, where the author of Hebrews says it like this, Take care, brethren, Let there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today. Why? Here's the point. So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of 
sin. Sin deceives. And so then it bats, it, uh, bats its eyes, it flatters with the lips, but in the end it only brings personal harm. Proverbs 6, 27 through 28. Can a man take fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Can he walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So it is with those who will give in to sin. Well, the point now you're wondering is like, okay, well, that's great. What does this have to do with Genesis chapter 37? What is the point of, of all that? Well, the answer is because in our verses that we see today, is that we see sin's aftermath. We see the devastation wrecked upon one family, upon brothers, upon a father, as they had given in to their hatred, as they had given in to their sin. The sin, the hatred, the envy that had offered them so much, in the end, brought them so little. So as a recap then of what we've studied so far in this chapter, we've seen that sin's bait was cast back in verse 2. In accordance with the generation's formula that runs throughout the book of Genesis, Joseph had seemingly been selected as the one through whom the royal seed would come. He was the one, it would seem, that Jacob had chosen for the promised Abrahamic blessing to continue. More than that, we continue on. We see that Joseph's uh, conduct, his dad's favoritism, and these alarming dreams all woven together provide a succulent environment for temptation to grow. And what happens to Joseph's brothers? They give in. They give in. They saw that as jo uh, Joseph grew in favor with his father, he then grew out of favor with them. They became more and more envious, more and more hateful, with the result that the brothers grabbed on to sin's bait, and they were pulled in hook line and sinker. That's exactly what we saw last week as we walked through the passage, as Jeff uh, walked us through. We saw that while hatred had been brooding in their hearts all along, they now had a chance to manifest their sinful inclinations. Oh, here comes this fancy dreamer. Here comes this Joseph wearing his fancy schmancy tunic. You know what? We're going to show that guy. We're going to show what's really going to happen to his dreams. Falling down before you, Joseph, underneath your roll. Ha, we'll see about that. I said this was our chance, this was the opportunity to get rid of this pompous, arrogant brat once and for all. And so we saw how hatred was manifested in conspiracies and in conflicts and callousness. They assaulted Joseph, they ripped the tunic away from his body, they threw him into a pit, left him there to die, but then when Opportunity came for financial gain. They changed their minds. Oh, here's an opportunity for us to make a profit. So they sold their brother as a slave. And just one of the most shocking things to me, verse 25, what did they do? They sat down, ate, and drank like it was nothing. We just finished a nice, hard day's work. So we saw the callousness. We saw the hatred. We saw the sin-hardened hearts that they exhibited. As I read this story, I just can't get James chapter 4, verses 1 through 2 out of my mind. There, James says this, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures, that is your lusts, your desires? 
that wage war in your members. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. These brothers had given in to those warring desires. They had given in to their envy, to their lust, to that which was competing within their heart. They lost the battle and they gave in to sin. Jealousy, envy, and hatred fumed and brooded within them until it was let loose and consumed their brother like a spreading wildfire. And so as we turn our gaze today, we then see the grievous repercussions of their sinful actions. If we could boil down this passage, these few verses, what would be the main theme? What would we take note here in these six verses? <coughs> these verses remind us this. Despite sin's promises, it always leaves behind a devastating aftermath. Despite all that sin offers, all that it promises, all that it plans to give, in the end, all that is left is devastation, destruction, and death. Now, sin's devastating uh, aftermath is, uh, is provided here in the form of three ugly consequences. Three ugly consequences. The first one we're going to look at is robbed hope. Robbed hope. In the wake of sin, we see its aftermath is that it robs people of hope. Look at verse 29 there. Now Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, so he tore his, garment, uh, his garments. He returned to his brothers and said, the boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? We remember earlier in the narrative that Reuben had seemed to come to Joseph's rescue. Look over at verse 21. There we see, but Reuben heard of this. He heard of his brother's plot, and he rescued, them out of, uh, rescued him out of their hands. And he said, let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, Show, uh, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him. We see that Reuben was successfully able to persuade his brothers not to kill Joseph. And the question again is why? What was Reuben's motivation? Was it for Joseph's benefit, or was it Reuben's benefit? And I think Joseph did care about his brother, but really we see that Joseph's, uh, excuse me, Reuben's main concern is his own personal reasons. Here he says at the end of verse uh, 22, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore them to his father. Reuben apparently wanted to find a way to rescue Joseph out of their hands. Why? With the chief reason being that he wanted to restore Joseph back to his father. Now again, on the surface level, it seems like a very noble thing of Reuben to do, saving his brother's life, right? We say, way to go, Reuben. Way to go, save your brother. But turn with me back to Genesis chapter 35. We see that Reuben, Reuben had a deeper ulterior motive. Genesis chapter 35 verse 22 actually gives us the background of what's going on here. It says this, it came about while Israel was dwelling in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Here is Reuben committing this 
as the book of Leviticus will call an abominable act. Here is Reuben committing uh, an abomination of the worst sorts in God's eyes. But we see in that verse, not only in God's eyes, this was also heard by Israel. This was a stink in the eyes of his father, Jacob. And so what do we see then is that this wicked act had caused Reuben to fall out of Jacob's graces, and even worse than that, had caused Reuben, it had propelled Reuben out of the royal seed lineage. A promise that God had made to Eve and her seed was to be carried on to each generation until what? Until the snake crusher came. And Reuben, as the firstborn, would have naturally been positioned as the one through whom the royal heir would come. However, by committing this act, he had now surrendered his birthright, and even worse, he had surrendered his claim to the promise. And so, as we'll get to it, Genesis chapter 49, verse 4, as Jacob is blessing his sons, what does he say to Reuben? He tells him this, You shall not have preeminence. You shall not claim the rights which were yours. You've lost them, Reuben. You forfeited them, Reuben. You are now out of the promised blessing. And so as we turn back then, Genesis chapter 37, verse 29, this is what's going through Reuben's head at this point. Hmm, there's an opportunity for me. Here is a way for me to get back into my father's good graces. Here is a way for me to get back on good terms. He starts putting two, to two, uh, two and two together and begins concocting what he thought was a foolproof plot in order to restore himself, not just the son, but himself and his father's side. If I'm able to save the fa- my father's favorite son, if I'm able to, <coughs> to save Joseph from my brothers, restore him, and then what? My father's going to be elated. He's going to be so happy with me. And perhaps, maybe, this could be even enough to change my father's mind. Maybe I can be forgiven of my past grievances and restore my place and honor as the firstborn son. This is brilliant, right? This is what is going through Reuben's mind. And so in verse 29, here comes Reuben to the pit. It says, now Reuben returned to the pit. Apparently he had gone away at some point for some reason or another, whether it was to tend sheep, to find some food, to carry on some kind of other manner of business. But what it it would seem then is that uh, Reuben's actual reason is to make an excuse so that he can secretly steal back to the pit without his brothers noticing, without his brothers being there to witness what's going on, so that then he could then deliver Joseph out of the pit without them noticing, take off, hightail it back, and restore Reuben back to his father. But what does Reuben find, though, when he returns back to the pit? Verse 29, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit. All my plans, Reuben, have failed, he is thinking. In a dramatic turn of events, what do we find? We find that Joseph is not there. All his hopes, all his dreams are dashed in an instant. All his plans have unraveled. And so do we see in verse 29, 
So he tore his garments. The symbol of great distress, of intense emotional pain, and why? Again, certainly because his brother has disappeared and his care for him, but on a deeper level and on a more uh, selfish level, it was because of his lost opportunity. He had lost the opportunity that he had and that he had been scheming up. Verse 30, how do we know that? Verse 30, it says this, he returned to his brothers and he said, now Reuben, instead of returning the boy back to his father, what do we find? uh, Reuben returning to his brothers empty-handed and ironic reversal from what we expected and as he is returning he's wondering what's happened what's going on here's a boy in a pit you can't get out of the pit there's no way to get out of this pit it's an impossibility so what's going on here where did he go he comes up to his brothers (coughs) (coughs) verse 30 and he says this the boy's not there i don't know where he's at where is he gone with the tone being that he's asking his brothers what's happened do they know do they understand that joseph is gone What's going on here? And apparently it would seem that at some point the brothers then relay to Reuben um, what has happened, what has transpired, the sin that has taken place. And then we see here at the end of verse 30, Reuben's robbed hope. He says this, As for me, where am I to go? Right, his focus is on himself. He's thinking this whole time, what do I have now? I have nothing. All that has been lost, the hope that I have been clinging to of restoring dad's approval has now been taken away from me. I'm already out of favor with him. And now that I'm the firstborn, I'm the one that will have responsibility, the one that everyone would be looking to in this circumstance. I had the responsibility for Joseph and his life. The blame will be cast upon me. I will now have to carry this on top of everything else on his shoulders. Essentially, Reuben here is mourning. Instead of being reinstated, he's saying, I am ruined. I am ruined. This is Reuben's sad plight. Everything that he had been clinging to, everything he had been holding to, had now slipped out of his fingers. His hope had been robbed. This is what sin does. This is what sin does. This is its deadly aftermath. When our hope is not in God, sin will steal and pilfer pilfer the idol that we are putting our trust in. It might be that job, it might be that relationship, it might be that possession. When all is said and done, sin will rob you of what you so desired, leaving you empty, bruised, and torn apart, just like it did to Reuben. The question then obviously becomes, where then should we place our hope? Better yet, in whom should we place our hope. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, the author tells us exactly where we should put our hope. He says this, quote, this hope, that is this hope of God's unchangeable promises and purposes in redemption, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, 
a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of El of Melchizedek. You see, when our hope is rooted in God's promises, not sin's promises, the author of Hebrews says, it shall never be robbed. We have an anchor of the soul, our Lord Jesus Christ. He is sure, he is steadfast, and no sin can rob us of that hope. That's exactly what we are learning in the book of Revelation. So then, we should found our hope on the immutable person of Christ. And when we do that, we will stand steadfast. That brings us then to the second ugly consequence of sin's aftermath, and that is increased sin. Increased sin. Right, the flesh is never satisfied with one measly sin. If not cut off, Scripture teaches and shows that sin will abound more and more. As Jesus taught in John chapter 8, he who sins is what? A slave of sin. Unchecked sin will always snowball. Sin not mortified will always spread like wildfire until the retardant of scriptural truth and repentance is sprayed upon it. And we know the most well-known illustration of that is David, right? David committed sin, and then what did he do? He kept committing more sin and more sin and more sin, snowballing, growing, until the prophet Nathan came, rebuked him. He was convicted of his sin with the truth. He repented, confessed, and turned from his sin So we see here that sin, if left unchecked, in its aftermath will only breed more sin. Look at verse 31. So they took Joseph's tunic and they slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. Here we go. In this string of rapid staccato-like actions that the brothers increase, they're now snowballing sin. Their dirty deed has been done. They have assaulted Joseph. They've thrown him. They have sold him. Everything has been done in that regards, but now they need to clear themselves. Now they need to remove any kind of wrongdoing. They need to provide a believable alibi so that they can manipulate and deceive and cover up the sin that they've already committed. This is the aftermath of sin. is more sin. And so what they do in verse, verse 31, they took Joseph's tunic. Again, we see that throughout this chapter, the tunic is the heart of the story. It's always symbolizing for us their resentment for Joseph and his exalted status. As one commentator observes, quote, the robe began in deep love, then it was torn in deep hate. Now it is the main tool for deep deception. So here they are taking the tunic, and notice what they do here in verse 31. They slaughter a male goat, and they dip the tunic in the blood. And you're saying, okay, well, that's a nice detail, but what does that have to do with anything else other than being a nice, fascinating detail? Turn over with me to Genesis chapter 27. Genesis chapter 27. Here in Genesis 27, a passage you're probably well familiar with, we find another story of deception. 
one that had occurred years later in our Genesis narrative. We find another father, Isaac, who favored a son, Esau. And we find a mother, Rebekah, who favored a son, Jacob. And again, we find another story of deception in which the son will deceive the father. Notice what Genesis chapter 27, verse 15 says. Then Rebekah took the best, what is this? The best garments, the clothing, the best garments of Esau, her elder son, <coughs> which were with her in the house. And she put them on Jacob, her younger son. So here we have, we have garments, remember that. Verse 16, and then what did she put? She put the skins of the, what? The young goats. The young goats on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. So we have garments and we have goats. And that is the means by which Isaac is deceived by Jacob. Now turn with me to Gen back to Genesis 37 and verse 31. And what do we see? Well, we see a father who favored a son. We see sons trying to deceive a father, and notice how do they try to deceive their father with garments and with a goat. Verse 31, so they took Joseph's tunic, his garment, and they slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. What do we find here? We find that Jacob, the deceiver, is now the one being deceived. R. Kent Hughes puts it this way, quote, Jacob's deceit had now come full circle. He got what was coming to him. Which, just in passing, what does that teach us? It teaches us that sin will always catch up to us. No matter how much we think we'll escape or elude sin's aftermath, there will always be a reckoning for our rebellion whether in this life or in the one to come, which is what Pastor Tom just so wonderfully expounded from Revelation, we will see Jesus face to face. So here we have two brothers, excuse me, here we have the brothers increasing in their sin by covering their tracks in the same sly way that, Joseph, uh, that Jacob had tried years before. Verse 32, and they sent the very colored tunic and they brought it to their father and said, We found this. Please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. Notice here in verse 32, it says, They sent. That word um, reveals the shocking reversal that has occurred earlier in this story. Remember, Joseph was sent to the brothers to do what? To find out about their welfare. And now the brothers send Joseph's tunic back to show that their brother is not in very good welfare. And so, here is Joseph's tunic sent back, and notice what they say here. We found this. Lies, scheming, deception. You know, we just happened to find this lying on the ground. We happened to just come upon this. Sin, increasing sin. And then what they see, or what they tell their father, say, please examine it. And notice this. I found this interesting. Notice to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. This is not my brother. This is not pure, poor Joseph. This is not our beloved brother. This is your son. We can see the coldness, the callousness, the hardness of their hearts. Steadfast, let us take our lesson 
from these actions. That sin, when left unconfessed and unrepented of, will always end in more sin. Mostly in the form of lies, deception, of covering. John Calvin put it this way as he was remarking on this passage, quote, This is the profit which hypocrites gain by their disguises that in wishing to escape their consequences of one fault, they add sin to sin. In fact, let me just stop here for a moment and say that there might be some here in this room this morning that are doing this very same thing. That you are trying to cover up the tracks of your sin with more sinful deeds. Manipulation or deceits hiding, lying. I want to exhort you today here from the scripture to stop. Stop increasing sin with sin. Stop multiplying your sin. Stop trying to get out of the tangled mess with unbiblical methods. Rather, then helping yourself, you're actually harming yourself. Rather than finding a way out, you are burying yourself deeper and deeper in your own self-made grave. It said, Scripture teaches us what we're to do in those moments. You are to confess your sin, to p- repent and turn from your sin, to As Proverbs chapter 18 says, to forsake your sin, that he who conceals his sin will not find mercy, but he who confesses and forsakes it will prosper. Confess your sin, forsake your sin, utterly reject your sin, and embrace the Savior. Yes, the pain might seem unbearable. You might think, that got out into the light I don't know what would happen to me. I might know, not know what will happen in my relationship with my spouse or with my kids or at my job. But the truth of the matter is that while the consequences may be brutal, the freedom of grace in our Lord Jesus Christ is far better and far sweeter than to continue to add sin upon sin. So we've looked now at their two of these ugly consequences, that trail and the deadly wake of sin that brings us to the third and final one, which is, which is unimaginable sorrow. Unimaginable sorrow. One of the worst outcomes of sin is not simply the ramifications that it has in our own lives, but what it has in the lives of others. So we've said earlier, sin had this snowballing effect in which it grew and grew and grew. We could also see here (coughs) that sin also has a rippling effect, like a mighty boulder thrown into a stream causing waves to ripple out. So too, sin produces negative side effects rippling outwards to all those who are in its path. That's exactly what we see here as The son's depravity brings pain and grief, not only to their fathers, but to all involved. Look at verse 33. So here, Jacob receives the tunic. 
He examines it. Again, this word examines is what we find back in Genesis chapter 27. We see this linkage, this connection. There, Isaac was unable to recognize his son's garment and thus Jacob's uh, devious ways. This time, though, we see that Jacob is able to recognize it, but he can't recognize the deception of his sons. In verse 33, he goes on, so he examines it, he recognizes it, uh, it's Joseph's, and then he says this, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces without the brothers even having to utter a word. They have their father deceived. He has fallen for his boy's trap, and they, he believes the very thing that they hoped for. And I like what commentators, they point out here, the way that the construction is in verse 33. Literally, it reads this. There's an emotional outburst of pain here of how Joseph, excuse me, how Jacob responds. He says, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. He has surely been torn to pieces. And then we have the last word that it would seem um, that uh, Jacob just cries out here. He just cries out, Joseph. A wild beast has devoured him. He has surely been torn to pieces. Joseph. His son, excuse me, his heart has been broken for his son. Verse 34, so what does he do? Jacob tears his clothes, he puts sackcloth on his loins, and he mourns for his son many days. He tears his clothes for the son that he thought had been torn to pieces, thus symbolizing that he himself is now torn apart just as his son. And then we see in verse 34, he puts on the traditional dress for grieving. He both grieves audibly as he mourns for his son and he grieves visibly as he puts sackcloth on and then we see he grieves inwardly notice he grieved for his son many days scripture teaches us that the longer one mourned the heavier the grief and the more important the person was often children at this time would grieve for their sons for a uh, for their children for seven days Israel, we see, mourned for Moses for 30 days, but Jacob says that he is going to mourn for his son the rest of his life. This is sin's devastating aftermath. Verse 35, then all his sons and all his daughters, that's probably his daughter-in-laws, they arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. It's difficult to know exactly what the children are up to at this point. Some commentators believe that they're gleefully putting on, putting on a facade so as to rub their father's face in all the more. I don't think that's the best understanding of what's going on. Rather, I think this is a genuine attempt at them comforting their father. Why? Because they love their father? Well, more specifically because of their own sinful, selfish reasons, in hopes that in, in doing so, that they would be able to comfort their father, to get their father's attention off of Joseph and on to them. They were hoping to shift their father's attention away from the despised Joseph and back onto themselves. So then this is not comfort for comfort's sake, but comfort for their own sake. And we see here that their ruse does not work, Jacob refuses 
to be comfort, comforted. And so you can only imagine the irritation and the frustration, the anger that would have risen up here, that even in Joseph's death, they still can't steal the father's attention and love and favoritism away from Joseph and on to themselves. He's still the one that matters the most. And so what do we learn here? Well, we learn this, that now everyone, including the sons, are paying the heavy price for the sorrow that their treachery had produced. All that they were hoping for and their sin and all of its promises failed. They could not get the attention and the love and the respect from their father that they thought they could get. Verse 35, what what does Jacob say? He says, surely I will go down to Sheol, the Old Testament place for the dead. I will go down in mourning. I will go down to my death. I will mourn him until I die. And so his father wept for him. The veil of sorrow has shrouded his heart, and it will lie there perpetually until he dies. Steadfast, sin never wins for anyone. Whether you are the perpetrator, the victim, or the bystander, sin negatively affects all parties involved. Sorrow, grief, despair, pain, even death. These are the ashes left behind in sin's devastating aftermath. The the fires of Maui ravaged an island and rocked a nation. Its aftermath left buildings burned, mothers, fathers, sons, daughters dead. But the fire of envy and hatred that swept through Jacob's family left an even greater devastating aftermath. It robbed hope It increased sin. It brought unimaginable sorrow to this family. But as Rod prayed earlier, the good news is what? This isn't the end of the story. This is just the beginning. While sin had wreaked chaos and threatened the Abrahamic covenant and the Abrahamic promises, there is a God who has a glorious future. That what man means for evil, God will use for good. And that's the rest of this story. That as we sit here teetering on the brink of this narrative, we're asking the questions, what will become of Jacob? What will become of Joseph? What will become of these brothers in this divided family? Can anything good come out of this horrible aftermath? And the answer is, there is a God who redeems There is a God in control. There is a God who is sovereign. There is a God who will restore. That's what we get to look forward to as we continue reading through this passage. So as we leave here today, what's the message? What's the the point? What are you trying to take home? It's simply this. Despite all its promises, brothers and sisters, sin always leaves a devastating aftermath. Would you and I remain steadfast in the face of temptation? Let us flee sin's deadly flame by finding shelter in the protecting arms of our Lord 
Jesus Christ. Let's pray. (sighs) Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for Genesis 37, Genesis 37 through 50, the whole book of Genesis, your scriptures all together, Lord. Every single jot and tittle is full for us to take, to eat, to meditate on, and to think about deeply and to extract precious honey, that our souls will be satisfied, that our hearts would be filled, but not just to be satisfied, to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so I pray today that we would see, just through this illustration of this family, their life, that we would see the devastation that sin causes, that it would prompt us to examine our own hearts to ask, are we so easily given in to temptation, to taking sin's bait? And Lord, let us recognize its outcome. Let us recognize the deadly aftermath that occurs. And let us flee from sin that we might cling to Christ. Lord, I pray you would do this work in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.